Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On May 14th, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron traveled over 200 miles from his home to Buffalo, New York, where he shot and killed 10 people who were shopping at a top supermarket. Based on a 180-page document which was posted on the internet, Gendron claimed that a motivating factor for his shooting rampage was his belief in the great white replacement theory, which he had learned about over the internet during the pandemic isolation. Earlier this week, 19 Latino elementary school children and two teachers were victims of another mass shooting in Overly, Texas by an 18-year-old. While we do not know if this shooting was directly the result of the white replacement theory, it has the same effects upon people of color. A recent Washington Post poll reveals that 94% of African Americans entertain a serious concern about white supremacist violence. Most recently, this notion of a great white replacement theory has been presented in many different forums to articulate an unsupported claim that a Jewish conspiracy exists to achieve the wholesale replacement of whites in the United States by racial minorities. This theory has been embraced by right-wing white nationalists and political groups. It has been used as a rallying cry to justify current efforts to minimize political participation by African-Americans and people of color, and to halt the so-called illegal immigration of people who seek entry into the country through the southern border. This theory has been cited as the racially inspired motivation for the 2015 Charleston, South Carolina mass killing at the Emanuel's AME Church, the 2018 Tree of Life Synagogue mass killing in Pittsburgh, the 2019 Walmart mass shooting in El Paso, and of course, the infamous 2017, You Will Not Replace Us or Unite the Right Rap, which was held at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. While many people believe that this is a new theory, it is really an old articulation of a worldwide racist belief that is as old as America itself. In the United States, a May 2022 Associated Press poll projected that more than a third of the U.S. population, which includes a larger segment of Republicans, believes that there is presently an active effort to replace native-born whites. Over the years, racially inspired mass killings which have occurred in Wilmington, North Carolina, Atlanta, Tulsa, Greenwood, and other locations can also be traced to the racist belief 
in this misguided theory. How did this theory originate? What it is and what has been its impact are the focuses of our discussion tonight. Joining us for this discussion are Professor Paul McAllister, a PhD scholar in African-American military history at Ohio State University, and who's also a recent graduate of North Carolina Central University, and Dr. Timothy Tyson, who is the senior research scholar at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and is a professor of American studies at the University of North Carolina. So to, to the two of our guests, thank you for joining us this evening. No, thank you, thank you for having us. It's good to thank be here. Thank you for having us. Well, to start us off with this discussion, first of all, I wanna just go to, uh, to Dr. Tyson. Can you just uh, give our audience some indication of uh, the present efforts that you're involved in at the uh, Center for Documentary Studies. I mean, you, you are a prolific writer and scholar and researcher, and you have authored a number of, um, of, of books and treatises. So what is it that you're working on right now? I'm working on a book that's tentatively titled uh, 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 Ballots and Bullets, uh, which is about... Uh, Black women and their particular role in uh, American electoral politics, uh, really starting from, from Reconstruction and uh, Ida B. Wells on through, on through what's going on today in Georgia and North Carolina uh, and the importance of that tradition to, to the, the, our way forward. All right. That's uh, an outstanding study. Uh, look forward to... Uh, Getting your take on the, on that, and uh, Professor McAllister, can can you just tell our audience a little bit about the uh, research and scholarship that you're doing with uh, respect to uh, African American uh, military history? Yes, um, I actually just passed my candidacy exams for my PhD program, so I can't claim the title of professor quite yet, um, but I'm working toward it. Um, well, we believe in name it and claim it. Yes. Sir. <laughs> um, but uh, my dissertation will look at the impact of African-American veterans um, on public health in the United States between um, the early 20th century and the mid 20th century. So that's something I'm really starting to gear up toward this summer. Hey, wow, that's interesting uh, as well. But let's get to this topic uh, here. So I don't know which one of you want to start us off, but just what is this uh, white replacement uh, uh, theory. Uh, let's start with Tim, since you are the, the senior uh, researcher uh, here. <laughs> well, I thought you articulated very well. It's, uh, it's this, really it comes in, it's come in uh, various flavors over the years. Um, but it's the, it's the sense that uh, white people are, are going to be replaced by people of color, that they're, uh, employment and their prominence uh, in America and their, their position in society is gonna be uh, supplanted by people of color, uh, particularly African-Americans. And it, and it uh, you know, this goes back uh, at least as, as uh, into the 1940s, but uh, you know, even, even before that, I think that, that uh, uh, even before the Civil War in the in the North, people who supported uh, uh, free soil, free labor, free men, the, the uh, 
early uh, Republican Party, a lot of the concern for uh, a lot of the anti-slavery sentiment, not not all of it by any means, was was a desire to keep African-Americans out of northern states. In fact, there were uh, six or eight different states in the north that had laws forbidding the entrance of African-Americans in those states uh, and, and doing so in the name of white working men, uh, not wanting to have to compete. Uh, and then you have you have you know the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1870s, which was uh, sadly one of the first accomplishments of the American labor movement, which did much better later, but which excluded uh, Chinese labor so as to uh, save jobs for Americans. And so you have, uh, and then in recent years, uh, the white power movement that uh, really came alive again in the 1970s. Uh, in the wake of Vietnam War, and the what became known, you know, the Patriot Movement, the Militia Movement, all these that uh, came up out of that period, uh, the bombing of the Federal Building in Oklahoma City, uh, biggest feather in their cap. But the the and uh, that's been, you know, we talk about white nationalism. They're really not. Many of them are not. Uh, particularly American nationalists at all, but in fact, engaged in a revolutionary struggle against uh, the United States government. But, uh, you know, in the name of this, you know, thing that's rooted in fear and resentment and rage over uh, the change in the roles of uh, African-Americans and women in particular in American society in a sense that white men are beleaguered and uh, being excluded and discriminated against and threatened. Uh, so that's that's uh, that's about where it, how I see it. Okay. And Paul, do you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, jumping off um, some of what Dr. Tyson said, you can also see some of the strains of what we see today, its manifestation today, um, the kind of great white replacement theory in the eugenicist movements of the late 19th and early 20th century, this idea mm -hmm. that there was a, um, a white race or a Nordic race, and that in order to protect that race and continue its supremacy, you had to limit the, at least in the United States, limit the um, immigration of undesirable peoples. So at that time, it would be immigrants from Eastern or Southern Europe, um, Asian immigrants, you would have to limit the rights of African Americans. And you can see kind of strains of that even today. Um, and, and it's also as Dr. Tyson connected that pointed out very much connected to this idea of kind of women's rights and abortion. Um, you can see how that manifests and even, even more subtly um, in today's political rhetoric, where you see a lot of uh, right-wing political commentators bemoan the fact that uh, white women aren't having enough children. And one of the ways to correct this issue is to ban abortion, um, which will kind of even out and tip the scales in their favor going forward. So there's, there's a lot of nuance and historical precedent for this theory. And can I ask you both to, to share your thoughts um, about the international uh, reach of this theory, that this is not just in the United States, um, but this is kind of worldwide. And the rise of this movement um, you know, can be tied to moments in history all across Europe. 
Um, Paul, let's start with you. Yes. Um, so in many European nations with this kind, with the, with the, um, for lack of a better term, kind of flood of refugees coming from places in Africa or um, the Middle East, especially with the Syrian, Syrian conflict, you see this backlash in nations like France or Poland or even Austria, um, where right-wing politicians are using this rhetoric of, we're going to be flooded out and overwhelmed. And these people, these non-white people who they're not recognizing as white, um, are going to uh, devolve our cultural and political institutions and we will become something not as though we are. Uh, this is especially prevalent. You can see it a lot in France, most notably, I think. Um, and there's an entire, very openly, um, it's, it's a pretty virulent discourse um, and um, that has its own kind of literature, fictional literature and political agenda, it's very strong, especially in places like France. Yeah, there's a, uh, a lot of places, like for example, the Scandinavian countries, which have been sort of socially liberal and have a cradle to grave uh, social safety net, uh, think of themselves as democratic, but this influx of people from other places and people who look differently uh, has tested the uh, people's commitment to democracy because it turns out that you know who is a who is a Dane or who is a Swede you know uh, who is a Norwegian uh, is somehow seen as racial uh, in the minds of people you often unarticulated but uh, you know we saw the mass murder of 70 some young people who were the children of uh, sort of liberal elites you know, shot at a summer camp a few years ago in Norway by a man espousing this uh, great replacement theory, which of course is, was one of the major tenets of Nazism. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, this is a worldwide phenomenon uh, as white supremacy always has been. Um, this is a, uh, a chilling notion that uh, typically isn't taught. Uh, straight up in our school system or uh, highly publicized. Uh, how is this teaching um, circulating? How does it become so prominent in the thinking of people in this country that you have more than a third of uh, Americans uh, believing in its, its truth? Uh, Tim, you want to Take a first shot at that. Sure. Um, you know the the uh, articulated the way it's being articulated now. Uh, this was a central tenet of the white power movement that came about in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, and is essentially still with us. And we misunderstand, we we underestimate the size and scope of this, and they have their propaganda. It's a little bit more. Uh, uh, less subtle than somebody like Tucker Carlson. It is, it is uh, seeped into uh, mainstream politics the way that, uh, you know, white nationalism in various uh, expressions has. Uh, the, the, uh, in the 
spiritual boneyard of the Reagan era, we saw this uh, these kinds of serpents of white white supremacist uh, theory bubble up. But Trump has really given it a green light, and so it has made its way further into the mainstream. But you know, I, I think you can overestimate the difference between this sort of what probably most people think of as kind of crackpot uh, uh, great replacement theory and really major tenets of the American mainstream conservative movement, which is, uh, you know, has, has an anti-immigrant and anti-black uh, flavor that goes back you see the same thing in the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s uh, espoused this same thing in, in, in an organization Klan in the 20s was had into the millions of people and, and whole state legislatures. The, every, every state legislature, le, legislator in Indiana belonged to the Ku Klux Klan uh, and Michigan and Mississippi and you know the, the Klan was, was deep into uh, elite circles and the go state governments in particular, um, and that uh, they had their version of the white, uh, of the great replacement theory, the thought that, that uh, Jews and Catholics and blacks were a threat to main, you know, uh, normal Americans, uh, as, as, uh, as has been stated here. Uh, you know, we hear Tucker Carlson talking about uh, third world Democrats, the idea that somehow uh, the Democratic Party was wanted to bring in these third world Democrats who were going to uh, align themselves with the Democrats as a way of, of getting stuff. And, and underneath the great white replacement theory, you have this sense that democracy has, has gone astray and there's a rejection of, the, of democracy because democracy is in their twisted version of reality Democracy is, is being used to give people things they don't deserve. Um, you know, so you're playing a white resentment and rage and fear uh, that's been there deep in, in American uh, political life for a long time. This is the uh, Legal Eagle uh, Review, and we are discussing the great white uh, replacement theory, uh, our guests uh, this evening. Uh, Tim Tyson, who is a senior research scholar at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, and is also a professor of American Studies at the University of uh, North Carolina, and Paul McAllister, who is a PhD scholar in African-American uh, military history at Ohio State uh, University. We're gonna come back and uh, have uh, uh, Paul to talk about uh, his answer to or his uh, reference to this topic, uh, but we're going to take our break right now. want you to uh, stay with us, and we will be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. 
We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue this uh, really uh, important discussion on the uh, Great White uh, Replacement uh, Theory. And we're talking with uh, Tim Tyson and uh, Paul McAllister, both uh, scholars uh, on the historical front. And uh, we wanted to get uh, their input uh, for you on this, uh, this topic and uh, its impact. So when we took our break, uh, Tim was talking to us about the uh, circulation, and uh, how this uh, theory has become so uh, prominent in uh, uh, politics and in life within the United States. And uh, so now we wanna uh, switch it over to Paul uh, for his input uh, on, this, uh, on this question. Yes, so, um... Jumping off what Dr. Tyson said, um, so much of this this theory has its the insidious nature of it is that its roots are in commonplace ideals around whiteness and white resentment, um, and it's not as blatant and in your face as it might be in um, on white supremacist sites and what have you. But many of the ideas about who is deserving of benefits, who is deserving of rights. Um, are commonplace conversations and thoughts that are shared um, and espoused by many white people, especially um, many more conservative white people. Um, and in the internet era, this can take on a kind of virulence in that it is much, the, these ideas can spread and can join um, with white nationalist sentiments much more easily and much further than perhaps they and they had been in the past. So on sites like 4chan, which was, um, uh, which I believe was the site of choice for um, the Boston shooter, um, places like Reddit or Twitter, or even Facebook, or even directly white nationalist sites, you can, you can engage in these conversations. Um, people can engage in these conversations and pick up these ideas and kind of the more time they spend in these sites and these chat rooms, they can adopt these ideas and for many people, especially these shooters who t are typically younger and male, it makes sense to them in a very twisted way. Um, and it feeds into their own ideas about um, how the world is supposed to be structured and maybe their own insecurities and their own doubts. Um, I read a research report the other day that um, I think 
the California Law Review that a lot of mass shooters tend to be um, young and male and white, and they have the certain ideas about how societies should be structured in the role of women. And this this kind of fits within that credo um, about who these shooters are and who and the kind of violence they they go on to carry out. And you know, um, as you were talking, Paul, about um, you know how these ideas are are spreading and um, it feeds into their kind of view of the world. And we've got this serious problem. Well, we've got a lot of serious problems kind of that, that seem to always exist. But when we think about the counter narrative and when we think about, you know, education and, you know, your, your worldview is going to be shaped by what you, what you learn and what you're exposed to. And, and right now we're at a moment in time where there is the push to not share the true history when we're talking about race in this country. So when people are thinking about who's deserving of benefits, right, if you don't understand the history of this country and how African-Americans were specifically um, excluded from, you know, benefits and being able to take advantage of, you know, uh, buying and selling property. I mean, where we are today as a community, there's a direct result to how the government was treating us and continues to treat us. And if you, if that information is not shared and people aren't, you know, educated about it, there is no counter narrative. Can you talk? And, and so, you know, my view is, um, I think part of this push against, you know, CRT is a deliberate effort to try and prevent people from being informed so that these types of ideas can just continue to grow and spread. Um, and so, Paul and Tim, if you both can kind of share your your thoughts on that. Um, I agree most certainly that when that many of that the kind of backlash more conservative white backlash against teaching the a more nuanced, truer history of this nation in particular is a response to um, it. Com- it conflicts with these kind of ideas that are held by so many, um, and I think it, as you pointed out, it also comes at an inflection point where, for many people um, of varying ethnicities, uh, black, white, Hispanic, um, the 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 kind of the many of the social systems and the political systems in this nation are kind of faltering and in some places outright failing. And so without this true history, uh, without a truer, more nuanced understanding of this nation's history, what a lot of people um, tend to revert to is this kind of uh, more conservative, um, more, how do I articulate this better? it doesn't give people much to much to kind of lean on and a way to kind of organize and think their way through and build coalitions outside of these kind of white supremacist uh, patterns of thought. Um, it doesn't speak to, it gives them an, an idea of the past in which I kept, guess kind of whiteness was supreme and unchallenged and then things were better, quote unquote. And that's what they latch on to instead of getting a more complete picture of what life was actually like for everyone, um, including people that look like them in many cases, and building toward a better future, a more inclusive future. 
I think it's no accident that this has this rising at a time when in the last couple of decades, we've seen corporate America desert American workers and get involved in sort of privatization and uh, wages have been stagnant or falling. And the notion that you could have a career with one company that would be committed to your well-being the way that you are to theirs, that that would somehow, you know, the, the idea of, uh, it's just a different uh, framework of, of economic life, even for, for uh, white folks. And uh, everybody seems to have a side gig and, you know, health insurance is something that employers don't wanna provide. So, uh, you know, the, it's easy to feel embattled and to, and to get confused about what is the cause of your predicaments. And, uh, you know, partly because, and I, you know, this critical race theory business, they're really not interested in critical race theory. They're, they're calling critical race theory. African-American history is critical race theory. Any mention of race is critical race theory because you don't want, uh, you can't explain, you, could, you can find this in the pro-slavery argument that says, you know, uh, black people are unfit for uh, self-governance and are dangerous unless controlled. Uh, you can find this in the in white objections to reconstruction and to uh, to see black citizenship as it as illegitimate, you know, on its face. These things uh, that are used to justify oppression and violence uh, go way deep, and but they resonate. Sometimes they use the same slogans. Really, I mean, it's it's amazing how. But but if you, you don't have a sense of continuity, then you can say that that. This, this is great replacement theory and this kind of racialized uh, antagonism, anti-black, anti-immigrant uh, statute. You can say that that is somehow a response to current conditions rather than seeing it in a stream of, of a deep history uh, that has to be changed. You know, you know you, you, Tim, you, you mentioned earlier uh, Tucker Carlson and uh, yes. the uh, ex-president of this, uh, country and their articulation of this uh, notion of uh, the uh, white uh, replacement theory, although they don't describe it uh, as, as, as that. So could, could the two of you kind of talk about the buzzwords that are being used instead of the uh, white replacement theory as articulated by uh, Gendron in his 100 an 80-page uh, manifesto. Uh, what are some of the those words that uh, are used that are used to articulate this replacement theory without calling it that? So, Tim, why don't we start with you and then go to Paul? The real doozy in recent months is uh, former President Trump's uh, speech in in Texas, where he he said. Uh, White people are just any, you know, this out, George Wallace is George Wallace. He said, white people uh, are being denigrated, just denigrated by uh, healthcare. Uh, you, white people have to go to the back of the line. White people can't get healthcare. White people can't get vaccination. They have to go to the back of the line. White people are being discriminated against. Um, and, uh, and then saying, you know, we were going to take, we're going to take back that beautiful house, that wonderful house we all admire, which happens to be white. You know, it 
it's uh, pretty strong stuff. Uh, but you can see how what, this thing that white people are being nudged aside and pushed like white people have to go to the back of the line, please. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't believe that's how it's worked. Okay. Paul? Um, things like giving amnesty to illegal immigrants. Um, uh, the idea that there's, there's massive fraud on account of um, Black people and people of color and immigrants um, with regards to voting fraud, um, which there's no evidence of, but there have actually been plenty of headlines come out within the past week of um, how white and Republican um, operatives have been engaged in voting fraud and, and kind of tampering in places like Michigan and what have you. Um, there's uh, one of the ideas, to go back to an earlier part of our discussion, one of the ideas that the, the Buffalo shooter espoused was that um, declining birth rates um, for white people in this country was tantamount to almost genocide, um, which kind of gets gets back mm -hmm. to our time regarding abortion rights and and wanting to limit um, access to women's health, more complete health care, and also the idea that you need to limit immigration um, into this country from non areas that are seen as non-white, um, which have certainly changed since the early 20th century. Um, so all of this is connected. Um, I believe uh, President Trump would call that as S-hole countries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and and this feeds into the, the whole fear of, you know, the browning of America, right? And so even if you, you know, limit um, immigration in the country, this, we are still continuing to become more and more brown. Uh, and this also feeds into the fear of interracial marriage, which again, kind of takes us back to Brown v. Board of Education and, and why there was so much resistance to you know, integration, um, especially at the primary school level. So it's all so incredibly interconnected. Um, and so can you two share your thoughts on, you know, th there's the, um, you know, there's the, the white nationalist kind of um, replacement theory, and then we've got the politicians using it and focusing on uh, the Democrats, what the Democrats are doing to try and take over um, politics, right? You know, so the reason why Democrats are in favor of immigration is because they want to bring in folks who will vote Democrat. And can you all kind of talk about that and how, what that does is it makes it so much easier than to go to the more extreme situation and you know, in some ways, it's almost like a dog whistle, right? So that the politicians are able to make these statements about they're trying to, um, you know, buy the votes by allowing people to come in. Um, and, and it's just a segue into the more radical um, views. So if you, you two can share your thoughts on that, Paul, we'll start with you. Yes. Um, for a lot of right wing, more conservative politicians today, that's the the kind of cash getting the Democratic Party or more left wing politics is kind of um, something that is anti white essentially is what they're trying to portray it as um, or something that 
are the Democrats promoting ideas or policies that won't favor white people at large um, is in many ways, it's, it's a response. In many ways, they're trying to create an issue, but it's also a response to common understandings about how whiteness operates and what whiteness is, should be entitled to among many people in this country. Um, what I think is interesting is that by pro projections hold that by around 2045, 2050, um, this country will be kind of majority minority, um, whatever that looks like. Um, however, it's also interesting to note that just because a nation just because it might be majority minority doesn't mean the politics will necessarily shift. Um, and I mean that in the sense that you can look back into the early 20th century where groups such as the Irish or Italians were seen as non-white and threatened the kind of power structure and status quo. But over time they were adapted and are now commonly understood to be white peoples um, who feed into that kind of power hierarchy. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how the demographic changes that this country will undergo may or may not shift the actual politics and ideas that are being espoused and what white looks like um, or what white is understood to be um, 30 years from now. Mm -hmm. um, so just because the demogra demographics are changing does not mean that we'll enter an era of progressive politics or that the right-wing rhetoric will die down or lose steam. In many ways, it might just be, it might just adapt um, to, to, to fit the idea and the mold of the people that are, that might um, come to inhabit the United States or might come to live in the United States in that population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's an outstanding um, observation and point. And um, Tim, we're going to get your, your thoughts and your reactions, uh, but we're going to have to take a quick break. You are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And Irv and I have been talking this hour about white replacement theory. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio as our guest, Dr. Timothy Tyson, Senior Research Scholar at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and Professor of American Studies at UNC Chapel Hill. We also have Professor Paul McAllister, PhD scholar of African-American military history at Ohio State University and recent graduate of NCCU. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I am currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, 
proven leadership and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with two incredibly insightful guests. We have Dr. Timothy Tyson, Senior Research Scholar at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and Professor of American Studies at University of North Carolina and Paul McAllister, PhD Scholar in African-American military history at Ohio State University. And right before the break, um, Paul, you were talking about um, how right-wing politicians have been using kind of notions of the Republican Party being um, you know, replaced by Democrats, uh, people coming into this country and voting Democrats and how that could potentially lead to um, the concern about white replacement theory. And you made a really interesting point about notwithstanding the browning of America, it doesn't necessarily mean that the politics will change. They may very well adapt. Um, Tim, if you could share your thoughts on how politicians are using the notions of of concern and, and rage and what your thoughts are about how the Browning of America will continue to impact this issue. Yeah, I thought that uh, that Professor Dawson and McAllister made, both made excellent points. I'm glad, that, April, that you raised the, uh, the question of, you know, of the integration of the schools in the 1950s. You know, when I was growing up in the, in the 60s, the segregationists were obsessed with interracial sex specifically black men and white women, as if the, you know, uh, had this twisted pornographic notion and also notions of racial purity, which undergird this. And I hear um, um, the, if you think about this minority majority or majority minority vision that some sociologists are, are putting forward about America's future, one thing that gets neglected is that the largest group growing uh, category in, uh, in demo- demographic category it right now is is uh, mixed race people. That is to say, white people marrying black people, uh, Asian Americans, uh, Hispanic Americans, and they're, they're being, and we, you have to believe in a kind of white racial purity to see this as a threat to white, that they're replacing white people because if somebody's uh, father is white and their mother is Hispanic, they're as, they're as white as they are Hispanic, unless you are obsessed with racial purity, which is this long, as he's long, deep and, and uh, dangerous and uh, absurd roots in our, in our politics and history. Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, when we talk about these buzzwords, uh, much of this show up in the uh, military and in law enforcement. 
and while they don't necessarily end up with mass killings directly, they are implicated in uh, many ways in the uh, uh, racial violence directed toward uh, African Americans and people of color. So, can the two of you kind of you know speak to 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 that? Uh, the, the importance of that kind of uh, interaction and thought processes within those uh, two areas of our of our country. I think that there is certainly, especially within when it comes to policing, a kind of um, a rhetoric, uh, a disregard, a demonization of of minority peoples, um, and you can see that. Um, throughout what's been happening over the past few years and then through the long, long array of kind of American history. Um, George Floyd protests and what happened were response to, to actions taken by police. Um, uh, one of the, I guess for me, one of the more interesting confluences of this is when you look at um, ICE um, and its policies and the makeup of its of its officers. So I read there's several articles out there, especially by I think good ones by the New York Times, that talk about how so many of um, ICE's officers, especially in the southeastern United States, are Latino. Um, and when you examine for some of them, it's just a job, and but when you when you enter when reporters go and interview them and make studies of this, they find that they're espousing kind of the same lines of thinking um, as these kind of right wing politicians, and that they've they've done things the right way, and that people who are coming in across the border are doing things the wrong way, mm-hmm. and that they're protecting their communities. And when you look at kind of the long standing tension and many places like Texas is that, do they see themselves as being Latino or do they see themselves as being American? And there's, there's, this, there's this weird tension there in a lot of these communities. And you can see that, and that's why, that's why I kind of pointed out earlier that the changes in population may not necessarily um, lead to kind of changes in politics because there's, there's already this kind of existing tension within many communities of, of, color um, about whether or not they are communities of color or whether or not they are Americans. And there's there's these baked in tensions that have been long present. Um, And you can see that reflected in, I guess, most notably ICE um, and the makeup of its officers. I think Paul Paul made a really good point earlier about uh, the the flexibility with which people become white over generations groups that are not considered white, you know, 10 years later become white. The, the uh, number of racial groups uh, that in the United States, according to, you know, demographers and sociologists has changed a great deal. Greeks were not considered white, Jews were not considered white. You know, we could go on. The Irish were not considered white when they got here. They, uh, but white supremacy has this flexibility uh, in order to maintain the power structure. Uh, of not being of not being rigid rigidly exclusionary, except uh, you know African Americans seem to be the uh, insoluble uh, element in this whole 
thing. I, th I also think uh, white supremacy is a notion that exists on all sides of the color line. And there are uh, people, who, you know, it, it's poisonous in, in the heads of people of color as well as it is in the heads of white people, maybe even more dangerous. So you see uh, people identifying with, with uh, the oppressor. And that, that's a, uh, also it's an old phenomenon. You see, for example, when, when the Great Migration, you see the thousands and thousands of people coming from Mississippi to Chicago, while the black people who had been in Chicago for a while were not necessarily welcoming. You're, you're kind of spoiling it for all of us. And you don't know how to act up here. And, uh, you know, the old stars, they call them, uh, were really uh, partly because they don't want to upset the apple cart that they are, have a, a semi-comfortable seat on. Uh, and I think that explains a little bit of the phenomenon Paul was talking about too. Mm -hmm. And, and how, how, should, how should people deal with this? Uh, you know, how do you uh, counter uh, this uh, spreading notion and probably uh, more uh, this notion that's more articulated now uh, publicly uh, than ever uh, before. How, how, how do we respond to it? How should we uh, respond to it if it is to uh, minimize its impact or to counter its, uh, its existence? Uh, Tim, why don't you start us off with? I think, I think uh, interracial political alliances are inevitable. That's that what we have to do is to see that we're all God's children and that uh, most of uh, the thing, the way, the our moral vision often coincides, uh, and that we have to uh, find bases to to uh, to form coalition and and to, uh, and that that the pro the reason why the right wing finds interracial coalition so problematic is because it becomes a living, walking testament to uh, the mm -hmm. possibility that racial difference need not be poisonous. And that we not we need need not be a threat to one another, uh, but that in fact there there is a, such a thing as the common good, and that can be pursued, uh, you know, in in all colors of the rainbow. Mm -hmm. Well, it's uh, off that point. It's it's also interesting at the same moment we're having a kind of wellspring of um, of the labor movement. Um, and what that could look like and what that could become. Mm -hmm. um, not, not in the sense that it, that it flattens racial difference and kind of eliminates it, the need for discussioning it and the need for the history, but, but what it means in terms of redirecting energies toward, um, as Dr. Tyson pointed out, the common good, what is, what is good for the everyday person, regardless of race, in terms of wages and in terms of workplace safety and in terms of um, access to benefits and what have you. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, you can see um, this kind of burgeoning moment in history, this, this labor movement that's occurring in places like Starbucks and kind of, um, uh, I don't know where else, um, Five for fifteen. Five for fifteen. Food. Amazon, various fast food establishments, as as a kind of expression of that, as of people recognizing that their primary issues lay not with each other, but the ways in which um, 
or how rather, um, kind of corporate and capitalist power structures have kind of pitted them against each other by taking a lion's share of the resources that should that all should have access to. You see uh, how how the right opposed Obamacare. Uh, it was reparations. They said this is reparations for slavery. A, a, a sneaky way to get reparations. This Obamacare, but of course uh, that ended up being good for everybody, and it's actually quite popular with both uh, on all sides of the color line. Uh, and but but there's always this use of things that are that black people can be a part of as being some kind of somehow uh, illegitimate, unacceptable, inherently corrupt. Um, but it doesn't always, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. Yeah, and, and race, you know, that kind of underscores, um, you know, this point that race is always this kind of wedge issue, right? I mean, you can, you can bring in race and you're going to um, demolish coalitions that may be budding. So what what is the response for those of us who want to um, build these coalitions? Like, how do you go about, I guess, two things. One, educating people about the history of white replacement theory. And, and how do you provide a counter narrative so that you can build these coalitions? Because this is the playbook that, that we know has been used throughout the world and certainly within the United States in terms of um, you know, those that wanna stay in power, right? You, you create these divisions so that people wind up voting against interests. Yes. I think from, from what I've observed went of and read about, about these movements and moving forward is a lot of the ways activists and organizers have tried to kind of advance these issues with regards to labor and other things is that educating membership first on members and potential members first on what things like a union can do for you as a as a worker but also um doing education with regards to kind of as we talked about the a more truer nuanced history of the united states and what that looks like and in a way that doesn't kind of crush or diminish um, the kind of racialization that's taken place over the country and the wrongs and the evils that that have come about because of that but have further but as but have used that as kind of a driver that this does what has happened in the present and what has happened in the past doesn't have to happen in the future as we move forward and building these coalitions and these are the ways we can do it smarter and better um, so that we take into account the kind of variant, very out of nuances of some of our members being white or black or Latino and women or um, having various gender identities that that they're working toward trying to build um, a more common understanding of the various nuances of that. And that, and that alone, that common understanding can make these movements stronger um, because they become more resilient um, to a, the absorption of these kind of uh, white nationalist and white replacement theories um, because they have a better understanding of who they're working with and why they're working with them and what they can achieve together. Thanks, Tim. Um, I think uh, 
one thing that I try to talk to white people about uh, is not so much, you know, who's getting what and uh, some kind of zero sum understanding of how, how American uh, life is, but what kind of world did you want your children and grandchildren and great grandchildren to grow up in? Mm. How, would, how about a vibrant multiracial democracy in which uh, people are uh, not regarded as things, but as you know, beings of sacred worth and, and uh, in which developing human capacities is a, and, and respect for each other are the kinds of uh, goals that we need uh, in order to address problems that we all have. Um, what did you what did you have in mind for yourself and what will happen if we don't pull this off mm. yeah yeah and i think that's a great point to um to end on you know kind of emphasize that that you know and and tim you said it before uh in terms of us all being kind of humans and humanizing society and and thinking about uh, what what we want for our children, right? What we want for our grandchildren. I think that's a, a great thought um, for us to ponder on as we unfortunately have to, to end our discussion. But we want to thank you both so much for taking your time and sharing your insight and your um, wisdom and your thoughts. Uh, we have with us here Timothy Tyson. He is a senior research scholar at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and professor of American Studies at the University of North Carolina. And we have Paul McAllister, PhD scholar in African-American military history at Ohio State University and a proud alum of NCCU. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.